friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. What's up, y'all? It's your friend MC Lars. This is episode 25 of the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, February 18th, 2019. Last week on the Worm Quartet episode, we ended with a cover, an Adam and his package cover that Worm Quartet and I did for my Robot Kills record. That was originally on the Up End Adam tribute to Adam and his package. And uh, before we get into this episode, let me read you something. This is from Adam's tour journal from April 26, 2001, Monterey Bay, California. This was the strangest day of the trip. Sean, Martha, and I went to sleep at around 3 a.m. and woke up at 7 a.m. to get to Monterey Bay, which is two hours south of Oakland where Martha lives. The show was originally supposed to be at night at California State University, Monterey Bay, but it somehow got messed up. So me and Harmar were scheduled to play at noon on the big field outside the dining hall at CSUMB. CSUMB is a very weird place. It's a new university and was born out of a closed down army base. So the campus is huge with lots of boarded up barracks and other unused big buildings. And there are actually very, very few humans on campus. It's sort of creepy actually, and really ugly. So at noon, Harmar Superstar began to play outside the dining hall. And there were perhaps four people in the attendance. Because of the lack of humans on campus, people weren't even walking by the green outside the dining hall on the way to eat. It was a hilarious scene. Harmar sat down, read, looked at the bulletin board, talked to friends on the phone while quote-unquote performing. It was hilarious. My set of songs was equally successful. We laughed a lot, returned to Oakland, went out for sushi, and then headed to the UC Berkeley radio station KALX, where a nice fellow named Lee interviewed me for a bit and played embarrassing songs off older records of mine because they didn't have the new one. Oops, I was at that show. And one of the things I learned from Adam was, first of all, how to be super, super nice to your fans. I, I told myself if I ever got to the point where people cared about my music, I would want to be as nice to my fans as he was to me. I remember when I discovered him, a friend of mine had a show, my friend Brian Orozco, who later went on to become uh, an American Ninja Warrior champion, he had a show called Punk Rock Academy, and he'd start the show with the Adam and his package song. So that's how I heard about him. Then my friend Ryan, who was my DJ, had his other stuff, and when we were rehearsing for a show, he played me his stuff, and I fell in love with his music, specifically the Metric song. But I emailed Adam to tell him how much I loved his style, and he wrote me back and I, like instantly, and I remember thinking, wow, this is this is... A very nice person. So that's why every email message I always try to write back and be kind. And when I went to see him for the first time at that Monterey show, we talk about this on the podcast. He was very nice to me. I asked him a million questions. I definitely was like going hard on the fandom, but he was very humble and cool. A few years ago, actually 16 years ago, he stopped touring. You know, we this on this episode we talk about how he got his start and he stopped touring to become a science teacher. And um, he's only done like two shows since then at the Fest in Florida. Oh, and also on the Chris Gethard show. And one of the shows at the Fest, I got to open for him like two years ago. And I asked my agent, I was like, can I please play this show? I heard Adam is doing it. So we did this interview at his house. He lives outside of Philadelphia. They had this beautiful spread of bagels and food. And I played Fortnite with his son. And um, I talked about on this interview how Adam had such great pitch and you know, he like he, he he maybe disagreed with me, and he said that punk doesn't have to be perfect. And he we talk about how it was fun, and it stopped being fun. And I also noticed on this interview, I, I edit a lot. Sometimes I edit my podcast down. This one I really didn't have to edit much because Adam is a very good interview subject. I also noticed when I ask him questions, I answer them myself really quickly. So I was just very excited. But um, 
At the end of the episode, I ask him what he learns from his students. And he says, you know, basically by being a teacher, he learns about how the world works and how it doesn't. And it struck me that throughout his career, he used the scientific method to see what, you know, what works and what doesn't. Try trial and error. Touring was fun for him for eight years, but then he wanted, you know, he had a family and wanted to be in one place. And um, it's it's very interesting. And how Punk Rock Academy is probably his biggest song now he teaches. Another interesting story is I know he went to college with MC Frontalot because Frontalot would talk about him and um, he talks about how Frontalot was back then, Damien Hess, did a Kiss cover at Orientation and um, how Adam had literally zero idea that Damien went on to become MC Frontalot and did this whole nerdcore thing. But that's interesting. He knew Frontalot as this Prince cover artist um, who went to college with him. Uh, also, he was friends with Adam Goldberg, who was, created the Goldbergs and schooled, and Adam, who was the executive producer on the Zombie Dinosaur LP. They were friends. So it's just this, everything collided on this podcast. Um, I, I wanted to share one last thing that he he gave me some perspective during a moment of existential crisis. So back in the day, iGeneration was used by Apple for some presentations and Avril Lavigne had done like a promotional deal with iTunes. And so since I had the same manager as her network, briefly we talked about the idea of me opening for her on some arena shows. And this never happened, but I was just getting started and I was used to playing small clubs and I worried like I'd be compromising my integrity if I did a tour with an artist like that, even though it would have been good exposure. So I emailed Adam. I was like, what are your thoughts? Would this be a sellout move? And he wrote me back the most prescient, smart, uh, helpful email I, I probably ever gotten in my career. He said, you know, I've never really cared what people I don't know have to say about me or my music. So you shouldn't worry. Congrats on the support thought. If it happens, you should go for it. So I really appreciate that. Adam's always, you know, meant a lot to me musically, his spirit, his his joy, everything about him is just, I look up to him a lot. And this was like such a coup to get him on the show. So this is my interview with Adam from Adam and Package. I usually kick the show off with a, um, with the hot topic is not punk rock, but I wanted to pl- start this show off with a rare song from a label called TPOS put out actually an eight track of his show in Newtown, Connecticut on March 21st, 2000. And he covers the song that never ends from Lamb Chop, the show, the character Lamb Chop. But what's crazy about this is two things. First of all, you know, Newtown has had some tragedy. It had that horrible school shooting. And so it's kind of beautiful to associate something else, a different memory with the school. But March 21st, 2000, was actually the day I played my first ever show as Lars Horace or MC Lars. So it's kind of cool that this eight track uh, hat that I got and got digitized from TPOS. Shout out to them. You can find their stuff on Discogs. Um, he covered this song. So we're going to start out with that. And then, yo, we're going to end the podcast with an unreleased Adam and his package song. Yes, I'm serious. He sent me an MP3. He wrote a uh, song about a student of his. It's called The Nicest Guy Around. And, um, so we're going to hear two rare Adamus package songs. It's a long interview, great interview. Adam, thank you for your patience. Thank you for always just being a, a stand-up guy and uh, thank you all for listening. This is my interview with Adam Gorin.
gentlemen i'm here with adam gorin in his house i'm your first podcaster to come interview you in your house right definitely i, I yes <laughs> thank you for hosting me we had bagels and uh your family is super awesome wow. thank, thank you. you i am biased i i agree with that and agree with bagel town being nice to be uh <laughs> inhabiting but you're very you're very welcome Lars. and last time i saw you was a few years ago we both were at fest mm -hmm. and um you know, one of the reasons I wanted to play it is because I knew you were c coming back. Oh, that is nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, what? So you played it once before, right? In 2008? As Adam and his package? Yes, I think I played that once before. I had played with uh, um, another band that I had played with for a little bit called Armalite. And we had also played, I think, that same year, maybe another year as well. Yeah. And then as in a Misfits cover band as well That's at sad. some point. <laughs> what's the connection with fest is it you just they love you and why do you make an exception to, to take a so i would say like the exception is not too frequent that that i have played but yeah essentially like um the fellow tony who sort of kind of i think started and oversaw the fest he used to play no he used to um work with no idea records who at uh for a long time were, were friends and um, just folks that I knew. And he asked, and, and I guess like most recently, it, I was hoping that I would get to see a lot of people who I had not seen for a long time. I mean, I, I feel like um, I made a lot of friends, I don't mean this to sound like I am very popular, but like I've made a lot of friends through playing music and traveling around. And yeah. as I've stopped doing it, um, you know, I think just by nature, I don't get to see the people who live far away as frequently. And I'm probably a crappier correspondent than I hope to be. Um, so I think that it kind of seemed like, oh, this is a great opportunity. First, my kids are old enough that they like punk music and that they are that they would appreciate it. And then, um, you know, being able to go to the fest and stuff. Um, so they uh, we you know, it just seemed like, oh, they asked. If I would play, and I was like, "Oh, this would be fun. It would be fun to take the whole crew down there." Um, and so that was really the except. I mean, I have made a couple exceptions in playing over the last few years. Another one was on the Chris Gethard show, and a similar mm. type of thing. Like it seemed yeah. like a special opportunity to like uh, do something that would seem really neat and fun. Would you ever consider like doing like two months during the summer with your family on the road and doing like a club tour? Is that a bit too much? I. I think that I'm just naturally not like at this point, like not it, not so inclined to do that. I think that uh, I, th I think I played, I toured a lot over um, 
the time when I when I was sort of active with Adam and his package stuff. And I feel like I stopped at the right time. Like I, I feel like it, it towards the very end, it sort of felt like a little bit like going through the motions. And I remember mm. playing some shows. And I I loved it. Like I feel so incredibly fortunate that I was able to uh, play and to travel and see the country and see a lot of the world and meet a lot of really really wonderful people. Um, I I really do feel, but I do feel like at the end there were times where I feel like I was playing a show. I remember and could think about something else completely while I was playing, and then that felt like a little. Uh, I don't know. I just didn't feel like present in doing it. And it felt kind of, yeah, kind of like going through the motions, which felt, it, it just felt like, uh, not dishon- dishonest sounds very um, dramatic, I think. But I think it felt like it was time not to play those songs after playing them, you know, whatever, you know, a thousand-ish times. That it, it just felt like it was time to stop. And so yeah. I would say now I... I do feel like one of the constant things through my life has been, and please feel free to tell me to shut up and stop talking <laughs> if, if I'm babbling too much. Um, but I, I, I think that music is something that has been consistent through my life as something that I've loved. And, and I kind of feel like after this amount of time, like that is probably going to be true throughout my whole life. Um, but I think that it, now it feels like liking and investigating and exploring other people and enjoying other people's music is so mm. much more has so much more returns for me than like playing i don't know it just doesn't it doesn't feel like something that uh that i need to or want to do at this point so i i, I do feel like that's unlikely that i would want to get uh and travel and play every night cuz um yeah and it was like what a seven year period or or total of where that was your main life, right? Yeah, pretty. Yeah. That's a long time. It is. It yeah. is a long time, and it was great. It was fantastic. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it's it was a long t- a lot of times playing the same songs, and I think that uh, I think that there were parts where like I felt like a part of doing it was sort of uh, being there with the audience and sort of talking about the songs and and yeah, and I felt like. After a time, it got to a point where it felt like I, I almost had like a canned sort of intro for this, and that, that to me, after doing it for a while, felt like okay, it's I've, even though it was, I gather people wanted to see and hear the songs. I think that there were times where it felt like I'm just sort of pressing play, literally and right. sort of figuratively, which felt right. like, uh not that compelling. It's interesting because so many people, especially people in bands seem to continue even past having that, you know, passion and joy of doing it, like to pay bills or not having other opportunities and being a solo artist, you kind of had the ability to be like, okay, I'm doing the ultimate mic drop at the height of everything and trying other things. And maybe, yeah, maybe you talk about that. Like being a solo artist, it was you had complete control. You could say, okay, there was no like dispute. Well, our drummer needs to has child support payments or, you know what I mean? Right. I, I would think that that probably made it so that the doing Adam and his package was viable even initially. Sure. That, like essentially like by it, because it was just me as a solo artist, it was like, if I want to go on tour and I can do it, 
I go and do it. You don't have yeah. to coordinate even stuff logistically as like band practice. Like I could stay up all night and put on headphones and do what I was doing in my living room forever. Yeah. So like as much as I wanted to do it, I could do. Um, and so I was really, really fortunate for that. Um, and and it, granted, there are some drawbacks of not having <laughs> human interactions in that. Like <laughs> when I've played in bands, it's been really, really fantastic because I have sort of solely been in bands and collective things with people that I really, really like. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I think that, that that may have also been a component to like why it may have felt at the end like it kind of dragged a little bit in that because it really was, there wasn't so much interpersonal dynamics between me and no one doing the thing. So um, if that makes sense, like I, it, I think that it probably made it easy and logistically possible and probably financially possible sure. too because it's just, you know, um, a person in a car Right. Um, and, and so that, um, yeah. So I, I think that, I think that it made it possible, but it also probably made it so that it was time to be done when I was done. You, let's talk a little bit about your origin. So you were in, uh, you were talking about earlier when we we're eating your band Franklin, right? Oh, well, so Franklin was a friend's oh, yeah. band. I was in a band called Fracture during yeah. the time and we coexisted. At that. There was a, a nice, like right in this area, like a good sort of core of people that probably from my ninth grade on like this group of people would probably like be in bands break up sort of switch around somehow shuffle around being different sort of like uh, permutations of those same people being in different bands so I think that the ones that sort of like that we once to some degree kind of congealed there were a group of uh, of our friends who were in a band called Franklin and there was a group of us in a band called fracture and yeah. we remained you know really good friends and you know traveled a lot and toured a lot together um and so yeah and fracture i remember um you i had a cd of of all the songs you guys released uh-huh. right and you had uh, what was it no way dna right that was on there and was that was that were you opening for fracture as adam no no okay. no so I it was think unrelated what, i think it was totally unrelated yeah. i think what happened was that when Adam and his package was able to put out records, we Fracture had put out a couple records. We had put out an LP that we released ourselves. Yeah, um, a couple seven inches that um, we had collectively with one of the guys from Franklin had sort of. Well, he had really spearheaded a label called Elbowhead that was just around here. Yeah, um, and so we had kind of put out these uh, records, but that had long been out of print. Um, so it was almost like ad space that it was like, hey, through the right. song on the end, Fracture had long had been broken up since I think 1995, and I think when the Adam and his package record, a society of people named Elihu, had come out, it basically we had basically just like thrown a Fracture <laughs> song on it and was like, hey, anyone want to put out a CD discography? Which I guess at that time yeah. was things that happened, um, and so I guess it was more out of ad space that it was just like oh um and i guess it worked sort of and your thresholds to adult living right was that a fracture song yeah that was a fracture song too and that was they sound very different yeah the fracture version is uh punker but yeah that's cool yeah um you 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 learned to play like what were some of your influences you know as a guitarist what like 
how did you learn to play and what made you want to play music? That's such a broad question. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, uh, like I said, I feel like a consistent thing aside from like family and some dear friends that has been consistent through my life has been some attraction to music, whether that was like top 40 in the 80s. I remember on New Year's Eve, the top 40 station would have this countdown of like the 100 best songs of the year. And like I remember like would chart it. My brother and sister and I would like listen to it and record every song and listen to this whatever six, eight hour advertisement fest that had some songs sprinkled in probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think when I think a neighbor's older brother had made a cassette, like a punk cassette mix, and for some reason that grabbed me, and it was probably like the first Clash record and the first Sex Pistols record and maybe the Public Image Limited record album that was probably all just shuffled together. Yeah. And I think there was something about those songs that grabbed me and um, that... You know, I, I guess took a couple guitar lessons, took guitar lessons for a little bit. But I think that like something that was accessible and nice about punk was that like it was something that the threshold to get to be competent ish enough to play Ramon songs was was pretty low, but they were still great songs. Um, yeah. And so I think that like there's a similar sort of thing probably happened with that group of friends that I, that I was describing um, that we all probably were grabbed a little bit by that and um, loved playing music and somehow started playing awful music and then slowly got a little bit less awful, I guess. And <laughs> um, we, uh, yeah, so I think that that's probably what started, just probably just a natural sort of affinity for uh, music. But did you find, like, some people are gravitated towards certain instruments, and mm-hmm. the fact that you have very good pitch and very good... Ah, that is a, that is generous slash <laughs> No, untrue, you can hit, okay. you hit your notes. You always hit the notes. And, <laughs> okay. And, 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 and it seems like being a singer, yeah, like, when did you realize you had this very unique voice, but also this very, I would say, objectively good voice, you well, know? Were you, that, would you sing, sing as a little kid on, like... At school and yes, yeah. I was I sang in chorus <laughs> type stuff. I yeah. didn't like doing it. I don't think. I think yeah. that I probably uh, uh, I definitely in high school. I was like, oh, I think this is you're supposed to do extracurricular activities because that will enable you to get into college or something. Right, did, right. But like, I didn't like doing that stuff. I liked hanging out with my friends. I liked playing music. I think that. That when naturally as sort of like an adolescent or as a kid, when it's like something that's like, I love this, this thing that it seems naturally to like be to for me to slide into like, oh, maybe I can do this thing that I love. And oh, my gosh, all my friends love doing this thing and kind of being opened up to the world of like DIY punk of that, like, oh, my gosh, we can do this thing and we can put out records or we can write songs that that's there's something that's really empowering especially as an adolescent when you're like insecure as hell and like you know and that that probably carries through to adult maybe to a less mm. intense um uh level but like um yeah so I don't think that there was anything in particular and I think that uh you know there's 
playing guitar. And I think, so for Infracture, I just played guitar and probably yelped in the background a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I don't think, and yeah, I think that that's very generous to say that like I on pitch and have a good, like, but I think that there was, there was something that was uh, sort of encouraging about punk that it was just like, it doesn't have to be perfect. And like, no. we were not a tight band. I think until we, till Fracture probably uh, reunited for a friend's 40th birthday party that we wanted to um, play for him. We probably net, that was the only time we probably actually played well. And <laughs> I think that, um, and, and I think that there's something that's sort of encouraging about punk that it was just like, yeah, this is fun. Let's do it. This is something that is a net good, whether it's for us or for this sort of like community that we felt a part of that, that made it so like, hey, when Fracture was done and our singer had moved to Washington State with his girlfriend at the time, soon to be wife, um, we were done. And yeah. I still at that point like had whatever internal thing in my brain wanted to continue to write songs. Right. And, had, and so a, a friend had showed me this music sequencer thing, which at, at this point I guess I would describe it as almost like garage band in a box almost that like you could overdub lots of different instruments and build one instrument track at a time and kind of like then oh okay I did the drums and that enabled me to kind of by myself I didn't have folks that I had found that I wanted that I played music with well and sort of did productive stuff so it enabled me to basically write and record and build songs on my own um and I think that that combined with sort of like this uh, punk-ish ethos was like, eh, why not? Yeah, I'll right. record some songs on a four track. Like right. my friend's band, Franklin, like I always went to shows with them anyway because I loved being with those people. I still do. Um, and so I would play songs before they would play like a song or two just for fun, just like because who cares? Like, yeah. and, and I think that that's, that's, I guess, why it was born and that's why I did it not because I felt like I am a talented person and there is a void in this world that must be filled <laughs> by me yelping like snide-ish you know things I think that was just like ah this is fun and somehow yeah that managed to work enough and long enough that and it was fun enough that I, I continue to do it when I am when I think of punk and mm -hmm. the ethos of it and so much of my understanding of it comes from being a high schooler listening to your records. Wow, like, thank like, you. Like Fugazi and and Misfits. Oh, and me, yeah, Fugazi and, and me. Yeah, same. <laughs> no, your cover, your covers of them. You know what I mean? Like the fact that like you had this. Um, for me, it was really an entry point into like the underground culture and the history. And I think probably for a lot of people of my generation who like grew up on your music. You know, I'm not that much younger than you, but but the fact that like. I love that you didn't, you weren't elitist. You would do like a Run DMC reference and mm -hmm. then you'd do Fugazi and then you'd cover the mountain goats. And like you kind of, to you, it was just the whole Adam is package ethos was, it was fun. You took it seriously and you were doing it for real. And when I started making music, that was always like, okay, am I having these? It was like the, the triforce of like my inspiration. Am I having fun? Am I taking it seriously? And like, Am I not worrying about what people are thinking? And that was really informative to me. Well, that that is a very nice. That is that. Thank you. That is very nice. Like and and I kind of do understand and sort of appreciate that juxtaposition of 
having fun, but also taking it seriously and yeah. doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, that, that resonates with me. That feels like, yeah, that's kind of what it was like at that time. And, um, and I guess that maybe also just sort of, I'm thinking about this, uh, as you were talking about before that what, when it was time to be done. And I wonder yeah. if that's, that's sort of like why it felt like it's time to be done that like because it did feel like the reasons why I liked it and like doing it was that it was real. Like I like run DMC. I like Sakai. I like, you know, Ghetto Boys. Fugazi. I like, you know, metal. Like I, yeah. and that all of those, all of those things felt very genuine and that all the songs were about stuff that I either love or I hate, you know, like that they're about friends and family that I love and stupid stories, but and they're about things that I think about the world that are horrible. And yeah, um, and I, I guess I feel like, yeah, that that I feel like you put it well and definitely more succinctly like <laughs> um, but that it that it was uh, the, the, the thing that the things that inspired it were things that were genuine you know there's things that i liked and fortunately like it was so low stakes that like yeah. it was stupid and people thought it was dumb and some people did like who cares like what what it's there was nothing mean spirited about it there was nothing that like yeah um so i think that it was easy to kind of go from that and then just do it why not because your costs were you weren't re- having to pay for crazy studio time it was just you and your passion and that is like that's cool, man. The, the idea of, I talk about this a lot in the podcast, this idea mm-hmm. of circumlocution, right? Speaking around, doing things and, you know, like to, to speak around because you're able to create and transcend barriers because you say things in a new way, you know, that, that aesthetic of the QI 700 and, and with punk and you're singing, no one literally had ever done anything remotely like that. I would push back on that a lot, but I mean, <laughs> I think that like, to me, it doesn't feel like really... It was anything new, like uh-huh. basically, like they are songs, like they, yes, the like. No one in the hardcore or punk scene, though. But I mean, but I think you're being modest. I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't. I th- I think that, like, you know, like I, I really don't think that it was anything new. Like there was, okay. there's plenty of like weird experimental punkish things that happened. Yes, no one did exactly, but no one did. Most things, no one does exactly what what has sort right. of come before, but they're, you know, songs that are sort of like snarky or, um, but musically they're really just songs to me. You had these songs in you, you touched on this, and you had to get them out somehow. So you kind of, your voice and your passion for it dictated how it would sound. That was mm. almost secondary to the fact that, like we talked about, it was fun and you had to do it. But what always inspired me also about your about your work is, how you were so good to your fans. Like I remember I was a high schooler. I wrote you like a, a fawning email and you wrote me back and you were so nice and you invited me to join your email list. And like the fact that like breaking the bar- the thing that was unique about it was that sure people were doing songs, but being DIY and doing it yourself and having connection with the people who cared about your music to me felt very revolutionary and inspired me to like, I was like, if Adam can do this, maybe I can do something similar with with hip-hop music and my love of rock music. And like the fact that you always treated people with respect and had this ethos and everything that was like, that for me felt very fresh. And I guess you weren't the first person to do it, but you treated people and you treated your fans and you treated the art of it in a way that made an impact as much as the songs themselves did, I feel like. Well, that is, again, that is so nice. Thank you. And I'm, 
I'm glad that that was the sort of feeling that you had from it. I'm sure I was not always as nice and as welcoming as I could or should have been. I'm sure there are times where I'm grouchy and stuff, but like ultimately it's like, yeah, there is something and that, that I think is something that is awesome. That was so attractive to me in DIY punk where it was just like, oh my gosh, these these people whose music really speaks to me and resonates with me. Oh, they're, that's a human being. Right. And they're <laughs> going to treat me like a human being. And I can go up and talk to this band that I love and put on a record, you know, from thousands of miles away that I'd never even know. Like you kind of put them up on a pedestal. But then I, I feel like that there's something that's sort of... Uh, field leveling about about doing that. that yeah. it's, and and not to say that it was a great, you know, exciting thing for like or important thing for me to do, but like I don't know. I like that. I like I I like the interpersonal human connections and uh you should be nice to people. Right. And um and again, I of course I'm a human. I fall short of that, as does everybody. But like, you know, I think that that's a reasonable goal and sort of motivation to be like hey be try and put yourself in someone else's shoes feels good when people are nice to you and it's it's interesting to me that like looking back that that felt so refreshing might seem a little weird right like the fact that like music in the 90s it was so corporate especially underground diy music was so co-opted the whole thing about Punk music is about the communities and the relationships and the mm-hmm. friendship. And be, by being non-corporate, you're able to strip away a lot of the dehumanizing elements of mass culture. And I think that's like that's special. And that's like at the core of uh, of core of like a lot of your messages. Would you agree? I I I would. I mean, I guess in terms of I, what resonates with me is that you're saying like, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that there's a genuineness. That yeah, it's like yeah, and that the relationships are genuine. And I would say like. I didn't invent that. I I was fortunate enough to be exposed to a subculture where that was um, encouraged and that that was a part of it. And and I think that it's probably just a matter of luck that I ended up sort of being steered in that direction. It could have been very easy not to have found DIY punk at that point and been adolescent, you know, alienated um, and probably angsty kid probably more than i i i probably objectively should have been um but like so i I think like that 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 subculture existed back then but yeah you're kind of you only know what you're exposed to so i think i think yeah it's a bummer it's a bummer like or it's interesting you're right like that that it's like that that's a breath of fresh air that it's like oh this human is Acting like a human, <laughs> right. you know, and so did you, did you feel, did you have any interactions um, that to you felt um, kind of supported the other uh, sort of perspective that did you have interactions where you perceived you where it felt completely opposite of that? Like were most of the interactions like that? You know, I mean, I think a lot of your songs made me think about things like um, your Washington Redskins song. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you see like in, in some music scenes, you know, elements of sexism and like subtle racism and mm-hmm. stuff that's just like th- for humor or for um, 
because it's edgy. You know what I mean? And that was always a little troubling to me. But mm-hmm. like, I'd always go back to your records and be like, no, here's a guy whose main message was about respect and equality and saying things that might be controversial to some people, but like what you believe and here's why. And like each song is like an essay, like your um, Palestinian uh, Star Wars song, right? Like that was interesting because you really made an important point and you backed it up with information. And I like that your politics were your politics, not just because something was trendy. Sometimes mm. I felt like sometimes the counterculture element of maybe some of the Warped Tour world and some of the bigger pop punk bands, it was counterculture for marketing reasons, mm. you know? And I'm not, I can't think of anyone particular, but I don't know, maybe that's a nerdy thing or like a liberal thing or something about growing up in a city, like a liberal kind of city that defined you, but the education element, the grow, I really feel like I grew as a human listening to your records. Wow. And I don't know if I felt like that with some of the bigger pop punk mm-hmm. bands that, that had gold records. You wow. Know? Well, thank you. I mean, thank you. I mean, I think that some of, yeah, <laughs> I think that like, and I hope it doesn't come across as sort of like know it all. I mean, I think I, I specifically think of like the Palestinians song that like I, I think in retrospect, I think that like where I was at that point, like that it that in thinking about it like over time, I think that at that point, that was when I was like touring all the time and I was staying with like, you know, kind of just seeing a slice of our population that was, you know, by and large leftist, which I think is probably where I sort of like tend to... Uh, sort of find myself. But I think that that during that time, I did sort of like, was exposed to like a lot of people who like, who, who had this sort of perspective of like, okay, this is like good and bad and does dehumanize. But like, I think that when I think about it now, that there is absolutely another, like you could title that same song. Like the Israelis are not the rebel alliance. Like, Stuff in life is complicated, and not to yeah. say that 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 doesn't excuse like that's not like meaning moral relativism is okay, and that you just like say like well everybody thinks their own thing, and everybody has a story that is, you know. But like, I guess during that time, my interactions were mostly with a group of people who were saying like this side bad, this side good. Whereas, you know, maybe in in mainstream. Uh, society nowadays it's sort of the other way so i think that like yeah. you know i so I, I i think that that song in particular may be uh one that i think could uh probably stand for a uh rephrasing maybe um but but yeah i do i do i mean i guess i think like 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 you had pointed out in terms of like the songs having like a genuine sort of uh argument for Things that I think, yeah, I don't always think and put things in the right way, but yeah, but I I do think that even though much of the music stuff wasn't very purposeful, like it was always purposeful to say what I think and be able to sort of back it up. So like mm. if you talk about the Washington football team, like that sucks. It's it's there's yeah. stuff that is that's kind of just like horrible and just mean and and yeah, to 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 state that and to say like here's why it's mean here's why i think it's mean i could be wrong like you can argue with me but like here's what i think and here's why and i think that those are you know those are reasonable things to state and feel and 
rhyme in music about. <laughs> and if you can make something, you know, uh, tempering something with humor and uh, like something I got from you also was like giving things like a long title that <laughs> defines the song, right? That's like a thematic thing. That's like the perfect way to write a haiku is just say what you want in a really long title and then put Don't, in You like have to write the, the song. Yeah, right. You put in what? <laughs> like 17 syllables. That um, humor helps you... If you want to say something controversial or that might annoy people, um, yeah, humor's great for that. And that there's this whole thing, and, and Weird Al kind of balances this territory, being funny without being a joke. Mm. That's what I always thought about when I made my first records, and that was kind mm-hmm. of just you. You have a sense of humor. Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, I, th- I think that that's right. And I do yeah. think that humor can kind of be a disarming way to, you know, have a conversation and connect with uh, people and it's much less adversarial or it makes it a little bit less adversarial if you're like hey this thing is wrong and stupid here's why i think that if you phrase that like look isn't this silly this wrong and stupid thing like yeah maybe it's a little bit more persuasive yeah i, I mean i i would I, yeah that makes sense <laughs> and i you're i remember like um loving reading your tour journals on your website because it was like this slice of life of the the world and and before very early years of social media before social media how you would show how you kind of it was like a you know Gulliver's Travels kind of perspective mm. seeing the world and like your what you saw what you did during the day and the subculture that you really documented with this sense of humor that made it fun it wasn't just like a boring travel journal it was like here's what we did today here are pictures and when did you start doing your journal or diary uh, I don't know when yeah. that stuff started but I think probably I guess around 1999-ish yeah. is that when computers were invented <laughs> <laughs> um I had a big reel-to-reel thing that went back and forth um and punch cards yep right? yep yep um yeah I don't I don't know but like yeah, I guess I, it seemed like something neat to do. You and I love how you'd post your fan mail or your hate mail <laughs> and explain why you agreed or disagreed. Like no one, in, no one I knew of was doing that, and that was like so cool that you had the technological savvy then to like brand yourself in a way that was authentic and felt authentic and was consistently. Uh, like your life, you know what I mean? Like putting your life out there. And I remember specifically the, um, your, your song about the metalheads, and you had mm-hmm. the, the Slayer guy with this swastika on his guitar mm-hmm. and, and why like people need to see that and know about that mm-hmm. and how you weren't afraid to call out like whack things like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I remember it was from a French metal magazine that I got when I was in France once. And I remember being like, just aghast at it. Like, was I it mean, Carrie King? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I, you know, I, of course, I love Rain and Blood. Of course, I love South of Heaven. Like, these yeah. Are, but I remember at that point seeing that in the magazine and just like it almost breaking my heart a little bit. Yeah. It was just like, yeah, I know they used like, you know, some fascist imagery for like, and, and there was part of me that was able to kind of like distance myself and just be like, Okay, they're just being like bad, like that's evil, and of course, fascism is is evil, and, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, I remember get it's like seeing that, and I was just like, ugh, like I was yeah. just so just discouraged and disappointed and yeah. sad that it was just like that's just it was just gross and um, and yeah, and it, it, it to me again, like I feel like I can make a logical argument why 
that's dumb and it's yeah. uh, destructive and crappy um, behavior. Did they ever address that stuff like in their interviews later when I am sure that they yeah. must have. I mean, yeah. I think that that they probably I'm sh- I'm sure that people have asked about their yeah. use of like, uh, you know, that type of imagery. Um, and yeah, I'm sure they have, but I would have to defer to whatever they say about it. And maybe they have a great persuasive reason, but I, I, I'd be hard pressed to uh, even conjecture what that could be. Mass you some personal questions. Yeah. You're raised in Judaism. Yeah. Are you a religious person? I would say that I feel culturally Jewish. Yeah. And I know that this sounds probably sounds a little bit wishy-washy stuff. Like I do not believe in God. There are there are rituals and rites that to me don't resonate with me. Like I I I don't Yeah, there are some things that don't resonate with me that seem like this is nonsense. Like who what um I do feel like sure that there are valuable sort of like uh lessons to be taught and you know that can be uh taken from stories from the Torah or whatever that sort of like you know help people consider and talk and think about what is you know moral behavior and how you treat other humans yeah um so when I grew up I went to my folks had me go to a conservative synagogue which so I was bar mitzvahed and you know, read from the Torah and memorized all this thing and, you know, was able to repeat lots of syllables that I didn't know what the heck they meant, um, as I'm sure lots and lots of uh, of, of children do. Um, and, but then, you know, when, when I had kids, when my wife and I had kids, we, you know, kind of wanted to somehow instill that some sort of connection to Judaism for the kids. Now, I don't know exactly if I could articulate why that is. I I kind of don't want it to be just because, well, lots of people hate Jews, so it's important that you know that you are Jewish because lots, there are going to be people who hate you. Like, I hope that that's not the reason, and I do think that there's lots of um, sort of productive, neat stuff in the culture that that's that's important. But so... For me, for reasons I can't articulate, I felt we felt like, okay, we want our kids to have some sort of Jewish identity. Mm. But at the same time, like I feel like as a parent, there are lots of unpopular things that one has to do. I feel like kind of similar into the songs, like I feel like there's a justification that I can do for most of those things. That it's like, no, you have to brush your teeth. You don't want to brush your teeth. You have to brush your teeth. Here is why. Right. You cannot play video games all day. Here's why. Like, um, all that kind of stuff, which may be unpopular, but I feel like I can justify it. Sure, sure. Whereas when the kids initially went to actually the same conservative sort of synagogue initially for like a, a year, and to me it felt like I wasn't able to make the argument like you should go to Hebrew school and go to services to learn X, Y, and Z because for me it felt like I, I had no way to like justify Like, I don't know why... You would have to do, like, I understand sort of like a bigger connection that like, oh, well, people have been doing this for thousands of years. It connects you to your ancestors. But to me, it just felt like saying things about God, just stuff that I just like don't, it doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't, I, I don't believe in it. Yeah. That it didn't make sense. So we were lucky enough to find this 
uh, movement called a secular humanist movement, which is basically like a Jewish movement. It is atheistic. It takes sort of like um, a scientific perspective from thinking about stories from the Torah and be like, okay, this, this, this bush probably wasn't burning and talking to a person like that's uh, yeah. And, but thinking like about sort of like thinking of it critically, but also thinking mm. like, okay, what could be valuable about this? But also, um, emphasizing the importance of like humans and human behavior and how you take care of humans. Um, I think over particular like rites and rituals that, oh, well you have to do this thing. How come God told you to? So I think that the the it really worked for us. And so, for example, instead of like having like a bar or bat mitzvah, and if I'm way into the weeds, please feel free to say, okay, that's cool. Just was wondering if you were Jewish or not. Like, um, <laughs> no, it's great. This the, is great. Like, instead of doing bar or bat mitzvah, they do like a research project where the kids um, identify something. So, for example, our daughter did a project where she was investigating uh, uh, like immigration basically and refugees so what she did was she went back and like did a research part where she was looking at the you know in Torah stories what how did immigration come up how was it treated and then also in historically like how are how are immigrants and and refugees what uh what are sort of their stories and then she also went into our own family like Mm. where did we come from and uh and then also it was it was pretty powerful in it coming like right at the fall of 2016 Mm. that was sort of you know it kind of like ended with like okay well what are our responsibilities to refugees and immigrants now um and to me that feels like those are really important sort of connections to make i guess sure giving it a historical context is good i think you could totally come to the same sort of like moral conclusions without thinking about the Torah, like, but, um, you know, I think that, that those are, I feel like ideally those are going to be a more, uh, uh, valuable kind of like, it, it definitely seemed at least from a parent perspective to be more valuable than what I went through where I just memorized a bunch of stuff and like, yeah, don't remember saying anything or thinking about anything that actually meant anything to me. Bringing the stories alive in a way that's relevant and shows why they're timeless and and why the stories are interesting. That's what I've always loved about the Torah and the Bible. And, you know, I was raised Christian and Mm -hmm. like learning about that stuff is so much more useful than like, here's why you shouldn't do that because I said so. Right. right? And that's like, that's cool, man, that you've done that. Do you feel like um, your kids appreciate that you haven't shoved the spiritual elements down their throat or like, do they, do you guys talk about how they feel about the culture? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you know, I think that I may have (laughs) idealized it a little bit in terms of, uh, because as I think as a parent perspective, when you think back on yourself, you're like, oh, this is way better. But I think maybe if you were to ask them, like, I think that, you know, kids are just like, I don't want to get up on Sunday and do this, you know, (laughs) thing. And that, uh, you know, it also probably comes from a little perspective as a parent being like, well, when I was a kid, I had to do this, (laughs) you know, thing. Yeah. That that they uh i don't know i don't know i don't know if you, if it's easy for kids in real time to always uh sort of like consider oh well it could have been like this and so maybe later when they're older they'll say oh that was a meaningful experience and they may not they may say like ah eh, that was just something my parents made me do and 
Um, you know, I think that like as a parent, you try and sort of find that balance of, oop, my pancreas. Oh, still have diabetes. Sorry, <laughs> Lars. You're, um, is that your, pa- your insulin pack? Yeah, this is my insulin pump. Oh, wow. Um, I think that I would say as a parent, you try and sort of like balance like guidance, but also yeah. balance giving that with ownership to the kids. So like it doesn't work to just tell people what to do and hopefully you kind of tell them what to do enough and plant seeds that some of them are good and helpful in for and valuable for them and for them being good humans. That's good. That's a Wasn't good synopsis. Nice? All right, great dad. <laughs> Can I? Okay, so let me ask you another question. I always yeah. wonder this, but are you or were you straight edge? There was some straight edge music that I really, really liked. Yeah. Um, I remember my we named my first car uh, the Judge Mobile um, <laughs> because I really, really liked uh, the New York hardcore band Judge. And I think that it was more similar, like as a joke, like. I did not let people smoke in the car. And so, like, we, I think that there was a song uh-huh. that we made called the, Can You Smoke in the Judge Mobile? No, <laughs> cannot. And um, there was all sorts of uh, call and response things like that. But um, no, I mean, there, I think that there was components that, that may have been attractive to me in terms of it just being, like, uh, counter the norm. And that I went to a high school that was different than the one that sort of my friends who played music and stuff went to. They they went to the public high school and I went to a different high school. Um, and I think that there was a component about being straight edge that I liked that it was just like kind of was almost like a a line drawn in the sand. It's just like, yeah, I'm not like you. Yeah. And not to say that like a high school kid who drinks is like the word is, is bad. <laughs> like that the kids... Do all sorts of things. Um, but I think that for me, it was probably so, probably something that uh, in the arsenal of like, I am not like, there were some jerky kids that I went to high school with, of course. And that there was something that, about that that was attractive to me that was just like, I'm not like the jerky kids. Right. But so you would never identify as straight edge per se? I don't th- think but, so. Do you drink? Yeah, yeah. I drink. Yeah, I, yeah. I like uh, some beer. I like it's, uh, I mean, yeah, I would say I don't, uh, yeah. You didn't really talk about partying and stuff in your songs. I would say but, I am not a uh, <laughs> a very risky person. Yeah, yeah. I am pretty risk averse, more so probably out of just being like scared yeah. <laughs> of everything. But um, <laughs> I think that, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not a party animal <laughs> if you can believe that uh, I'm, I'm surprised yeah, Adam. it's hard it's hard for most people to think to believe that i want to talk about go through and ask i have specific questions about each of your albums yeah and, this, sure. and this, I mean, this will be this will, i'll make sure i'll keep it moving okay not to dwell um but these are things i always wondered okay so your first album do you call it the first CD or is it self-titled Adam and I think Package? it is self-titled. Okay. I think I may have put on the website the first CD because it was the first CD, but I guess in retrospect it was self-titled. And that were you expecting to do more albums after that or was that did it feel like a one-off kind of thing or did you even have any I had idea? no it was not meant to be a band. Like I think it was seriously named like as I was 
recording the cassettes of the demo that I made, which a lot ended up on that first record. And I was like writing out the like the info sheet. Yeah. And I think that it was just like, oh, I have to name this. Eh, I'm the name of this. And yeah, um, you know, that that was an interesting decision. You know, 25 years later, <laughs> thinking about like when a student comes up and is like, you did this thing called the and it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I did. I've already paid. So you don't need to pile on. I've already paid for the the dumb name but like um memorable mem- that's yeah yeah um and but uh yeah so i didn't i didn't think but it still again like it sort of started organically like i'm just recording songs yeah and it didn't feel like i would stop recording songs at that point so it didn't feel like it would necessarily be a one-off and you tracked everything to tape like a four track um my friend mark scott who uh he was a guitar player in Fracture, and he actually now is a high school teacher of English. And he he had recorded stuff in his home on like an eight track recorder um, on cassette. So okay. it was like a um, and so what what I would do for that first record and the second record as well, and much of the third record was like I would do all the backing tracks at home on the sequencer, mm. and then it was like in one day I would bring it over there. We'd dump it all onto a cassette tape and then I would just overdub the vocals and it was done. So you'd bring like floppy disks for, with the sequencer or you'd no, record No, just bring it. the sequencer, oh. plug it right into two tracks and just basically like yeah. we didn't use all eight tracks mostly. Mostly it was like the two background tracks and then vocals maybe a couple times over it. Could you save them on the on the QY700? Like could you... Oh yeah. You, the vocals? No, no, the, the music. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did it have like a little hard drive? It did have a, a floppy disk on that one. Oh, okay. Yeah. And wow. so did the one I think I got after that, the RM1X. But the QY20 didn't. It had all internal storage. And I remember at some point, I think I got some like MIDI thing that had like a disk drive on it so I could offload the internal storage reset the memory and there would be nothing on it. Yeah. But then I could put stuff back on it if I needed to. Okay. Wow. So, so it was a lot of like talking about circumlocution. You had to solve <laughs> problems to go around and do things in creative ways. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. So were you, would you consider yourself a nerd, a nerdy guy knowing this technology stuff or not? So I don't know. I mean, like I nerd nerdish. Yeah. Nerdishy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but not, I don't know. Like I, 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 think I'm lucky enough to like have some know-how and um, I feel like I am technologically competent in most things, but I wouldn't say that I have a remarkable degree of insight. But you were persistent in figuring out all these different yeah. ways of doing things, right? Yeah. But that also comes with like liking something and doing something that you, you know, if something gets in your way, you try and figure out how to continue doing something you like. Yeah. And enjoying it. Yeah. Too. When you that first record, your voice is particularly high, right? That was sped up. Uh, so oh, it when was. I recorded the vocals on that, uh. we slowed down. There was like a pitch control thing, so we would slow down the music a little bit. And I think that that's because I felt really self conscious about it. And hearing my voice was like, that sounds terrible. This sounds a little bit uh, goofier. And so I guess it allowed me to get a little bit of uh, separation from it. But then, so I think in the second record, and maybe the third one too, it was probably sped up a little bit, but then I stopped that. Yeah. So so, so making love or, or uh, 
I think redefining music was yeah. probably the first one where I didn't speed up the voice at all. Interesting. And one might look at it, listen to that, and still be like, "Well, you still sound like you're eight. So, um, <laughs> so each re- that's interesting. Each record became progressively less sped up. Yeah. So pretty soon you'll be doing like a <laughs> slow grindcore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was Bloodlink Records? Uh, that was a record label that a guy from Philadelphia. Um, did like a DIY punk label. Um, and they put out mostly sort of like hardcore stuff. I yeah. Think. And at that time they'd put out some records that I thought were really awesome and sort of meaningful to me. They put out like this Arizona hardcore band, kind of metalish hardcore band called Groundwork that I really liked. They put out um, a record by another hardcore band from around here called Frail. They put out the seven inch by a, uh, Canadian straight edge band called Chokehold that I really liked. So I didn't really know the person that well who was in it, but I'd heard a lot about the label and it sort of wow. uh, seemed to me, you know, like, uh, you know, and yeah, he was willing to do it. Did you approach him to put out a society of people named Meliu? No, I okay. was because we didn't get on that well. Uh-huh. And, um, and at the same time, like I didn't feel like, uh i was i was uh sort of engaged with with that particular it was kind of just like oh okay we put out this record like i wasn't committed to it it was just like the whole project was pretty free-flowing and kind of like whatever so um so a friend of mine actually the friend i was telling you about a little bit earlier which of course makes chris jensen chris jensen yes Mm -hmm. so he ran uh, a collectively run label out of uh uh, Brooklyn um, called the Mountain Cooperative uh, Record Label. And they put out lots of hardcore bands and stuff like that. And we had become friendly. And he's super, super dude. Good. He's still. the guy you said taught in Greenpoint? He did for a while. He oh, taught middle wow. school and now teaches at uh, teaches biology at Pratt. And That's awesome. Um, yeah. So he did a re- the record label for a while and was like, is still like amazes me and how productive he can be you know even with lots of other busyness and life going on so and he was like probably like the most serious like diy dude that i had met at that time because he knew how to do everything he knew how to do like the graphic design of stuff which he had taught himself how to do using photoshop and illustrator um he knew sort of how to do such things as make a spreadsheet calculate things. Mm? So, um, and at that time, it was like, oh my God, you can do all this stuff. So, um, yeah. So, you, yeah, so he had put out that record. You referenced him in Punk Rock Academy. Yeah. Um, what? What's up with the cover, with, with the teeth? Like, was that your idea? Uh, yeah, I mean, those are my teeth. Yeah. And my <laughs> dentist, I think like at that point, he had gotten this fancy toy where you could take pictures and stuff. And he took these three pictures of my teeth and then was like, smile, and pointed the yeah. tooth camera at me and took it and then printed it out. And I just thought it was such a funny photograph to see these like gigantic teeth and then like, yee. Is Elihu your dad? Yeah, that's my dad's oh, name. Oh, okay. Yeah. So wh- why a society of them? That was just like an inspirational. I think that I, at that point, as tends to be my natural disposition is that uh, I love people, but people are horrible. Um, and uh, okay, uh, and I think that I felt like my dad is a very intellectually kind person. Um, yeah. and I thought, well, yeah, maybe it's just his name that causes uh, 
and the people the society of people named Elihu might be good. Maybe they would have had experiences that go along with having a weird name. A real utopia. Yeah. Where the, where the schools are progressive. Exactly. And the people are all named Elihu. That's right. That would make class and classes very confusing. <laughs> um, so you, so those two records, um, our friend Andy Fancy Pants put them out on vinyl through Toxic Toast, and he just did my did two of my albums. So we oh, technically awesome. are the same label awesome. distributor. <laughs> How did that come about with him? Shout out to Andy, by the way. He runs Toxic Toast Theater in Long Beach. Great guy. Um, how did he? I think had come up to me at the, or no, he had emailed me and was just like, do you want to do this? And I was like, look, this is economically a terrible proposition that you are making. Like (laughs) no, no one, no, I'm not playing. No one could making these tangible things in this day and age, like probably is, is not going to be, you know, like you're not going to make your money back. Like if you want to do this, Go for it as long as you are a nice person and it is clear that he's a nice person. Like, um, I was like, sure, yeah, go ahead. Like, those records had long been out of print. And you own the masters. I would say by default, yes, because those, (laughs) those records were made like there was no talk of who owned masters. It was like, great, we put out this record. Cool. All right. You know, and, you know, so I talked to my, I think I emailed, both of them. I talked to Chris and was like, and he was like, "What? Yeah, I haven't done Mountain Records in twenty years. Of course, you can do whatever you want." And I think that I had emailed the Bloodlink guy that was just like, "I'm doing this. I haven't yeah. talked to you in thirty years. Like, you could not possibly care about this, could you?" And I think he was like, "No." And I was like, "Okay." So good job. Um, you did, you were honest. Well, yeah. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah, I actually haven't seen. Oh, I have both. Oh, you and do? They're great. Oh, awesome. They're they're in my uh with my records. Oh, but, cool. But, and then I, I bought from him, he did the two tapes with the box, right? You know he did a cassette release. No. You didn't know that? So uh-huh. it's it's both of them in like with the green cassettes in a box that's Ooh. like both covers. Oh neat. So and I thought it's really cool that you're the 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 it's like a charity pro- proceeds going to LGBT charities, yeah. right? Which is awesome. Well, like, I mean like yeah. it, I am fortunate enough that I am a gamefully ployed adult that like I first it might be the case that those records are such losing propositions economically that he ends up having to like steal from this LGBT uh, Q <laughs> kids center that it is to make it even. But like, so I don't know if that will actually end up doing anything, but like, yeah, sure. I'm lucky enough that, if for whatever reason someone accidentally makes any money off that stuff, it can go towards something nice. Well, let's plug that now. Got, you guys should go to Toxic Toast's website and buy both the albums and the cassettes to help oh. recoup. All right. We had to plug that. <laughs> um, my favorite record of yours is Making Love, and I love them all, but I love Making Love because it, it's essentially, it's it's kind of a, an amalgamation of your B-sides and EPs, and it's kind of like a, a mishmash record, yeah. right? How did, yeah. Can we talk about that? Sure. Um, that was your first one on Hopeless, right? No, that was on No Idea. Records, oh, No Idea, sorry. Out of Gainesville. Oh, right. Um, and there's a connection there to Gainesville. Yeah, so that was the connection because uh, Tony, who does the fest, used to work with No Idea Records. Um, they were a record label that had. That was another sort of like uh, one of those moments where um, 
I mean, to me, I remember buying the No Idea fanzine. It started off as a fanzine that would kind of put out like seven inches with it and then ended up being this record label. And that was like, you know, again, one of those things where it sort of was like on a pedestal. And it's like, oh, my God, No Idea put out this compilation that has this awesome song on it. Like, so as a label and they'd put out some records that was like, oh, my gosh, this is a great. And so I think just from touring and playing shows, I had met and sort of been introduced to those folks and um for making love i had again sort of put out a couple seven inches just on whoever like if someone wanted to do it great i'll put out a record with you but one was with a friend's uh label uh that was in massachusetts for a while i believe now it's still in in uh brattleboro vermont and they had put out a seven inch they had wanted to a, a friend from new york who i'd known through other folks had wanted to do a seven and so there were these other things and i had recorded a couple other songs and i guess at that point like cds were newish and that was like the medium with which uh mm. on which people distributed stuff so I was like, oh, it would be nice to have all this stuff in one place. They wanted to do a record, and I was like, ah, cool, let's do it. And they were into it. Again, like it was very informal. I was yeah. like, do you want to do this? Yes, sure. Here's this thing. Cool. Let's do it. <laughs> Keep it moving. Yeah. <laughs> did you think about doing more records with no idea? Yeah, I think I did. I think yeah. that I was going to – I I think they – I think after I did that record, I, I at this point I was like touring pretty consistently, and I think that there were a couple labels that were interested in doing a record. One being Hopeless, um, and uh, no idea. I think would have wanted to do another one, but there was no um, contract. And I remember like there were a couple other labels that had wanted to do it, and it was really. I am not somebody who is very decisive, and I really hate making decisions, um, and. I remember it was really a little bit gut-wrenching for me to do because like there was part of it that was like, okay, well, Hopeless kind of is a little bit more um, kind of pro in terms of doing, you know, like press stuff and sort mm. of like what what could, the, you know, and so there was a part of me that was really interested in like, oh, well, what would it be like to have this uh, sort of thing go along with a record? Um, and no idea like down to earth like um but just was and so i think that there like it was hard for me to sort of know what i wanted to do and then i think at the end i probably was just like eh, i'll try this um yeah, yeah. and you so because i remember you put out hamburgers on on file 13 right right which so you weren't you were doing like a per album license deal you never signed for like three there was records. no deal there was oh. no deal so file you have 13 paperwork so with hopeless yes okay but like from but from any of the other no like uh. file 13 was my friend's label that i helped run for a little bit um and a friend of mine from germany who had set up a bunch of shows had done uh the vinyl version of hamburgers the ep but like there was no contra there was no no arrangement of anything yeah. like the arrangement was like well if we press more i'll send you some more records and you can sell them on some tour, tour right. and that was it like yeah um, so hopeless was the first like label where it was like, oh, well we do contracts. I remember getting the contract and I was like, I don't know what any of this means. I was like, what is a mechanical royalty? What is a this? And yeah, you know, probably pretty soon I was like, I guess that's fair. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't, um, 
and they're they're down to earth you know uh really positive great people too like um but yeah it was a different different world than i was used to since i was completely used to just doing things because it was like this person is a friendly yeah. and let's do it cool yeah who distributes your stuff digitally now did the labels all do it themselves like- i don't know. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I Hopeless has distribution channels that I'm sure they have someone who does that. I don't think the other ones are distributed. They're digitally. not on Spotify, right? I don't think so. I don't know. Would you put them up if you could, like on TuneCore or something? You know, I you mean, I, yeah. would, I would, I don't know anything. So when you I were asking before, you, are you a you. nerd? Do you know these things? I don't know anything about that. Yeah. My stuff ends with knowing like the Philadelphia Phillies lineup in 1983. <laughs> so, um, oh, and if you want to know about like an acceleration of a box sliding down a ramp, I'm your guy. But I have no idea like even yeah. how you do that. So I would say I, yeah, for me, like, if people want the music, like I would, you know, they yeah. have it. Like, I don't, yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 I don't, I, I, so I don't, I mean, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. You could put them online easily if you own the masters. Right. And like, that would be cool. I own them. I think, I mean, you no do own owns. Them. Yeah. Yeah. So you, it's like the first few ones, especially, you know, I don't know. Are you inspired in any way to record more Adam is package stuff or, or no, no. Okay. I think that over yeah. the past, like, yeah. yeah. I guess 16 years at this point, I have recorded maybe three other songs. Wow. And they've mostly been, well, two of them are are bad. Um, (laughs) One of them, I think, is good. I wrote it for like a student as part of like a fundraiser for school that was like, uh, um, but no, I don't, again, like I, I love, 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 love music. Spend any extra money I have on music, like do, um, you know, spend, a lot of time, like almost all my waking hours listening to music somehow. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that, I think I broke that mm. sort of, uh, productive part of my brain that wanted to make my own music by yeah. doing it too much. And that I very rarely think about making a song. Do songs come to your head while you're like driving or I think ones that I can annoy my children with, like <laughs> by repeating over and over to them. Yeah. Um, not anything that anyone should want to <laughs> play voluntarily. Let, can we talk about Harmar? Yeah. How, how you two met? Because I, I, when the first show I ever saw you was at um, CSUMB in I, Monterey. I remember it. You remember that? Yeah. And I was and I was so excited. And there was like it was it was like it wasn't packed. But I was so- I have the best pictures from that show. Yeah. Where this nice guy set it up and yeah. like the school wasn't in session. It was like a college show yeah. where the school wasn't in session, right? Was that it? Yeah. It was it was like break winter spring break or something. <laughs> uh-huh. And I drove over from my high school and skipped art class because I had like Whoa. a double period. And because I, I was like so my friend Ryan and I went to see you and I remember you played a great show and you like made me realize like even if there's not a lot of people there there's always that if there's one person who's so excited to see you you got to give it your all because they're going to remember and you <laughs> did and then i remember i came at you with like a barrage of questions after and you were so nice to like oh. answer all of them well i'm sure i was i'm <laughs> sorry but I, I have a feeling i was probably thankful that there was uh you know anyone who <laughs> wanted to talk to me that tour was that your first with Harmar, or you done with tour with this Shanana band? So not a tour with Shanana. Yeah. Um, so 
So Sean, who does Shanana or did Shanana and is Harmar superstar person, um, we had put like overlapped and played a couple shows Shanana together and um, me and so I think we had just met and sort of just knew each other a little bit, but yeah. then um, we had set up like a Shanana like the you know week or two. Um, overlap tour on purpose together. Um, and then he was like, Oh, I do this thing called Harmar Superstar, um, which was like a one, per, you know, a similar sort of setup, like backing music and then yelping around and uh, trying to have fun. Um, and so we um, had set up a, show, a tour and we were like, Oh, we could drive my mom's car. Yeah. And just, just the two of us, like, do it together. Yeah. How funny would that be? And so we did like a whole you know, pretty much U.S. tour together, um, just the two of us. And you booked it your, yourselves? Yeah. Wow. And because I remember when I first started, you sent me the list of DIY promoters, right. the magic list, which I really appreciated. And was that like a lot of work to book shows? I'm sure it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that like, obviously with um, the, you know, the advent of internet stuff and it being commonplace made it much, 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 much easier. So like, I remember getting a the resource Book Your Own Fucking Life, which was a uh, resource that Maximum Rock and Roll had put mm. out, like um, where it was basically like broken up by states and then some international uh, people who booked shows and stuff. And I remember, you know, just spending tons and tons of time uh, booking shows for Fracture and Franklin when we would go on our our trips and. Um, I think just building it from that and then doing it, it was definitely much easier with as email happened. Mm. But yeah, we I booked him, you know, for most of the time, I'd say like probably the first five years of Adam and his packageness stuff, like booked all those tours. I didn't book any of the European or international stuff, um, but US and Canada, which I guess is a little international, um, is, uh, but yeah, I just booked him and just wow. somehow and you just kind of, make relationships, a lot of trial and error, and you kind of trade information that you have with other folks, I guess. Would you know if you were going to get paid or not to play, or was it just fingers crossed this would break even that day? I think that it was DIY to the case of like just the sort of trust that like, eh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there was times that I didn't get paid, and especially at the beginning, but at the same time, if it's just me, it was much more finite. Like it wasn't, you don't need to feed five people. Right. You feed one person and put gas in the car. So like you could survive off, you know, X number of dollars. And hopefully the people would at least intermittently um, have enough of sort of like the show putting on experience and sort of like doing it and making sure that they would put someone who made sense locally so that people would be there, I guess, to help try and offset the costs for the touring band. You probably hadn't, my point is you probably had very eclectic openers then doing that. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Do you have a favorite record of yours or is it hard to like No, I, I think Redefining Music is my, I think that I feel like that was the, the one that I had put in the whatever amount of hours that made it. So like that one I recorded myself. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, I took the time and sort of had the just practice to make it sound good-ish. And, um, you know, I like the songs, even though probably a good, like, third of them aren't my songs. Um, the But 
Yeah, I like that one. I feel like that's one I can listen to now. And not that I do it that frequently, but like um, I can listen to now and be like, ah, I like this is this is good. Yeah. Um, I feel like maybe the one after that was kind of probably on the tail end when I was like, do I do I want to do this or am I just doing this? The and the wait, the last one was attention uh, blah 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 yeah and did i have um i'm downright amazed yes yeah and i like that song yeah but um i think as a record it's it's there's stuff on there i'm like Bleh. did you kind of have a feeling that that may have been your last album yeah when you're making it i think you so. did oh, i think wow. so i think that that was yeah. you know i wasn't positive but i think at that point i was like this is not as jazzifying as um as it was before. Like it felt yeah. like I should write a song rather than like, I'm going to write a song. Oh, interesting. You know? So, and then you realized, okay, well you, you were going to play your final show. And mm-hmm. I remember that was such an event. And did you know that you were going to like want release it as an album and a video? Was so, that the plan? Yeah, we, that yeah. was the plan. Um, so the plan, so I think it was 2003 that like in, I think it was probably like April or so or March, where like within a week I um, was diagnosed with diabetes and uh, we found out Jen was pregnant. Mm. Jen is my wife. And um, and also I was going on tour in Europe for two months later on that week. And so like it was a and so all the other sort of stuff had been brewing where I was just like, eh, do I want to continue doing that? And at that point I was like, yeah, this is probably a good time to stop after that trip. So when I came back from that trip, um, that, you know, I plan, I, there were folks in town and still do had started like this. They had been putting on shows. They're called R5 productions, but it was basically a couple people at that point. Now they've, you know, they've, they've been a huge asset to Philadelphia music stuff. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to play my last show. Is that cool? You guys want to do it? And they were like, yeah. Um, and so I think that we aimed to record. There was a, a guy around here who was like, ah, I have a couple of video cameras. I'd be happy to record it. Um, and the sound guy was like, yeah, we could record it. I think that the thing we had in- initially intended on recording it like separated by tracks, but I think it was so hot and humid. It was like in August and in the basement of this church that had like no ventilation at all. Um, at that time, and I think the heads on it were like had all sorts of condensation oh. of gross sweat, probably. Yeah. So like the multi-track thing just never worked, and we were like, okay, I guess we'll just record it. Hopefully, it'll be mixed appropriately-ish, <laughs> and it was mixed appropriately-ish. Yeah, and that was I remember that was like the a week before, a week after Wesley Willis had died. Oh, was that it? Same okay. Summer, and I, I remember after that September was when I did my my first tour and it oh, was okay. it was like a it's like an emotional month you know oh. what i mean like of all these changes and how did it feel like did you feel relieved or did you mourn it or like what was the day after your last sh- your last show how mm-hmm. was how did you feel uh probably dehydrated <laughs> but um i think i felt okay i mean i wanted uh. to do the, it felt purposeful like it was it was time to stop yeah. um I think I'm sure that there was a component that I was like, okay, what the hell am I doing now? Um, and, you know, with big life sort of changes, you know, having this disease to manage and having child 
that was going to exist to manage um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that was probably, you know, also sort of on my mind, but like it didn't feel mournful. I felt like mm. I had, I stopped when I wanted to stop. And I think in retrospect, it was absolutely the right time to be done. Like you just put down a giant backpack, right? Or something like a feeling yeah. of taking a weight off, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds like a little too like, whoa, oh, I had to tour for seven years <laughs> yeah. and go and play music that I liked. Like, <laughs> right, right. You know, but like it felt like it was time to do that. I mean, I wanted to be home. Like I missed, I remember touring all the time and like missing like, you know, I have relatives who I was really close to who yeah. were really getting older at that point and just mm. being like, ah, oh, man, I haven't, I don't get to hang out with my grandma because I'm away all the time. And, yeah. and so that it just felt like that was the right time. When, how long was it between that and then you started teaching? Was that like a year or did you start that fall? Um, it was a year. Um, and so I, yeah, I just did some like office work, but also we had a new baby. So it was, uh, it was, I was fortunate enough to be around a lot for that. Mm. So it was the following fall that I started teaching. And you had gotten your credentials to teach before or while Adam's package was happening. Yeah, right? kind of at the very onset of it, like um, in 1997, six, okay. I think I, I got my teaching stuff. And I had, um, so I got certified to teach high school science stuff. Um, I did my student teaching for seven months. It was really, really tough. Um doing it and when I was done it I would not have been able to I was not you know mentally at a place where I could actually endure a year of uh of teaching so I knew I wasn't going to and I sort of this Adam and his package thing had like so and I was just like I should just set up a tour I'm, yeah I'm not gonna be teaching like why not it'd be fun you knew and you had it to fall back on fall back the on. teaching stuff yeah oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. I think that that was really yeah that was probably made it more easy to do um yeah so yeah so you'd gotten your master's right after or yep so i went to college and then in graduated from school in connecticut then came back to philadelphia there was like a one-year master's and certification Uh. program that i did you went to college i don't know if you know this but with mc front a lot Damien Hess, who's a guy I tour with a lot. Are you serious? Yeah, he says he knew you because yeah. you dated someone who lived in his dorm. It, nope, she was a friend of mine. A, but fr- like, a friend, but sorry. You know, I friend. remember yeah. he in freshman year did um did like a cover like there was like a you know, when they have the orientation, they had like a like a talent show. And I remember he did uh he did a version of Kiss by Prince. He may or may not remember it, but I remember that. Oh, that's so funny. Did you know that he became this, the nerdcore rapper guy? No. So he, yeah, so he 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 invented the nerdcore hip hop term, and there's a documentary about him. And Are you serious? We've toured for like 12 years together. Oh my gosh, that is so funny. You didn't know that. I had no idea. That's no. crazy, because he, he, we always talk about your music, and we play it in the van and stuff. So. That is so funny. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Please tell him I said hi. I will. <laughs> that is so funny. He was actually the first guest on the podcast. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I can't wait to listen to that. That is so funny, Adam. We're going to wind down. Okay, you, you've been very generous with your time, and um, it's been really great talking to you. And like, I'm just wondering if you have. I always like to ask this question. It might be cliche. Do you have any advice you would have told yourself at the onset of your? music career that now 
as an adult teacher you would have taught yourself? I mean, I think that there are probably some like uh, things that I would say that they're not like global things like, hey, Adam, don't be an idiot. It'd probably be like, don't do this at this particular point, this one particular behavior. But like, I don't know. I feel really, really lucky that things turned out the way that they did, that I was able to do the things I got to be able to see the world in in lots of ways that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And yeah. um, no, I, did, I fortunately like didn't, you know, I feel like a lot of life is kind of lucky. A lot of random things happen that are really terrible for people or are really good. I mean, I think that the amount of driving, and maybe this is very parental, like the amount of driving that I did and probably stupid drives I did more with like a band of other people, but like, and that never had a serious like act like that's awesome. But yeah. on this side of it, it's like, I don't know if I would tell myself like, don't do it because obviously it turned out okay. But like, yeah. um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. That. Not knowing what the future held maybe is what's exciting. You wouldn't want to like interfere with that joy. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know what I would have done differently that would have, you know, like again, like I can think of like specific things where I'm like, like I remember, I remember like a show in Houston. And I remember this person like asked me to like sign a poster or something. And I remember being like, no, I don't, I don't. That I don't want to do that. Like we're just like, you know, I'm happy to talk to you, and like I just feel it feels uncomfortable, and it would feel uncomfortable, I think, at any point. Like, but like at the same time, now I I think about that. Like, so there are like specific things where I'm like, that's kind of jerk. Like, who cares? Like, even if it was not necessarily like the most comfortable thing for me at that point, like, dude, whatever. Like, a kid wants to do. Like, why not increase the happiness of? You know, uh. such kid, and so like I think of things like that where I'm like, that's probably a jerker, and I'm sure you know I, I'm sure I was a know-it-all in tons of different like conversations. I can think of a couple where I was just like, where I think back and I'm like, ugh, that was a jerk. Like, um, but there's nothing overall aside from like, eh, don't do that to that person. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's anything globally that's like, you idiot, you should have. Played the uh, xylophone on that track. You had this great education that you could, you kind of learn all this stuff yourself, right? Looking back that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't taken this amazing path. I mm. feel really, really yeah. lucky. Yeah. I mean, the experience of doing that stuff was incredibly fortunate. I was very, very privileged to be able to do, um, you know, to have the, you know, yeah, the flexibility and the support to be able to do that kind of thing because, yeah, it's, I, I think it was a rare experience and one that uh, is not not had by everybody for sure. These days you teach science, high school science. Yep. And do you enjoy that? I do. Yeah. Um, I do. I, I genuinely, I mean, if you would have told me as an adolescent that you're going to voluntarily spend your time in high school, I would, you know, that would seem so ridiculous to me because I hated every minute of being in high school probably. Yeah. Um, but I genuinely like almost, you know, 99% of the kids that I teach, like I really like that age group. I feel like kids at that age, 
their senses of humor are sort of like funny and uh, sort of dry enough in a lot of cases, and they're sarcastic. There are times where people are a little more cynical than, but I, I feel like, yeah, I genuinely have a good time doing it. I like science. I think that like there's there are ways to make it engaging. I think that people and kids want to kind of figure out things that are puzzling and that are interesting and that there's such a wealth of weird things in the universe that um, kind of are great venues for that and are great venues for kind of like developing kids thinking and stuff. And um, yeah, so I, I do like it. Do you find you learn from them a lot? Um, like that cliche you learn from your students? I think <laughs> I think that I... In- I mean, sure. I think that you yeah. learn interpersonally, like yeah. that's just like when you do anything. The more experiences you have, the more kind of refined your conclusions get about the world and how people behave and how they act, um, and what kinds of things work and what kinds of things don't work. Um, so I think in that sense, and I think that as you hear more people's stories, you learn more about like what the human condition is, I guess. Um, so I would say I don't. I probably don't learn too much of the physics or chemistry content from <laughs> the students. Although, of course, like there are plenty of times where kids like, "Oh my god, I learned this," and I'm like, "Well, wow, I wonder why that is." Yeah. Um, but I would say that that learning about humans happens. Do you think you'll ever release that song that you said you any of those songs you made these past few years, or um, maybe not? Yeah, I, I, you know what, I didn't think about it. I would, yeah. I. It may even be, I think at some point I was like, SoundCloud is a thing. Yeah. I'll throw the song up there. Like it made, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, maybe it's not up there. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm a lot, I would say like, I don't, that stuff doesn't take up a lot of my time of thinking like, huh, yeah. how can I release this Adam in his <laughs> right. package? So it's kind of like, oh, I have this song. But yeah, I would not say that I have thought about it very much. That's very freeing, right? To have created this thing that you love and, kept life interesting and grown and and moved on and like that's you know that's inspiring to me as i think about the future myself and i love that i love your positivity and optimism and so i would i would not confuse it necessarily with positivity and (laughs) optimism i mean i'm i am very very content in and feel like i've stopped doing music making music stuff when it was the right time i would not say i'm super optimistic about the humans yeah yeah, I, I we could get into a lot, yeah, that, but uh, it might be a long conversation yes. <laughs> and very depressing. And so maybe we'll end it there. Okay, <laughs> Adam, thank you for your time. Oh babe. my gosh, thank you so much for your interest in being a good, good sweetheart. I appreciate you. And adamspackage.com is still up, right? Yeah. So people who, if, those of you listening who maybe are hearing Adam for the first time, like there's a he's got a great discography and that website is is fun is your diary tour journal still yeah there? they're all still up there hate mail um <laughs> it probably it looks exactly the same as it did in 1999 or whatever so it it uh it may not be a very dynamic web page but and aren't you adam gorn on twitter or yes a-t-o-m because that's hilarious um yeah. gorn at or at See how I'm so, I'm so. Adam Gore. Yeah, Yeah. that's the way that they do it. (laughs) Follow him and uh, cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Peace.
the nicest guy around. Adam, you sure you're not talking about yourself? Nah, <laughs> that's tight. So um, thank you all for listening. This is the MC Lars podcast. That was a great interview. I want to give shout outs to my Patreon supporters, my new ones, Brian, Kristen, and Adam, and my old ones, Bob, Rob, and Christina. Thank you all very, very much. Speaking of punk rock, next week we have Vinny Caruana. This is an interview I did like last year, and it was one of the first ones I did. And uh, I'm the Avalanche had some reunion shows and they've been touring a lot. And Vinny I've, is a incredibly talented, nice guy who was in Head Automatica and we've worked with a lot of the same producers. He came over and we talked for a while and it was a very good interview. So that is next week, Vinny Caruana. Thank you all for listening and uh, thanks again, Adam. It was an honor having you on the show. Okay, I'll talk to you guys soon. Peace.